So it's fire pit season at the Hack Shack. That's my house, the Hack Shack. Um, so the other day I was doing yard work. Thursday tends to be my day off. And my boys and I decided to start a fire pit fire as we were doing yard work in the afternoon. Um, and so we had this week old pile of dead uh, sort of branches in our pit. And Jude, my oldest, and I were, were leaning in. I had the lighter in hand. I strike the flint. I touch the flame to the branches. And then, boom, the whole thing just erupts into this massive fire. And it scared my oldest, Jude, actually. And I mean, it is just, it is like running with fire. And it cracked into flame. No fuel. That's cheating, by the way, when you use fuel. Um, Just dry twigs. Well, later that night, we started another fire, but it was for friends. Uh, uh, But we didn't have old branches anymore. Because, as I said, I was doing yard work. I had freshly cut, green, bendy branches. And nothing happened. You can picture it. I noticed as the flame was touching the leaves how resilient they were to degradation, destruction, flame. It was a picture of contrasts. Dry and dead twigs versus fresh and living branches. And of course, I'm meditating on John 15 while this is all happening because the sermon is coming up on Sunday. And so I couldn't help but think of my relationship to God. Too often my soul feels like pile one and not pile two. Dry, brittle. A.W. Tozer, he would say that all of our faith um, is always in danger of what he calls becoming inferential. You'll see the quote behind me. He writes... To most people, God is an inference, not a reality. He is a deduction from evidence which they consider adequate, but he remains personally unknown to the individual. And over time, when this happens, uh, God becomes an inference and not a reality. When that happens, we become like the first pile of sticks, don't we? We feel dry, we feel worn out, we feel brittle. We want to be like the second pile, resilient, green, alive. And so what can we do? Well, the word that Jesus gives us in this text is abide. And you can see it in verse 4, if you just take a quick look. In verse 4, Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Jesus says that the answer to our dry branches and to our fruitless lives is abiding. And abiding in Him in particular. 
Okay, but what does that mean? That's the thing. I was at a Young Life camp when I was a a brand new Christian, and I was sort of uh, excited to be there. And I remember my leader kept on leaning in and saying, abide in Jesus, abide in Jesus. And I remember as a young Christian saying to myself, what on earth does that even mean? Abide in Jesus? I have no idea what that even means. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to explore what that could mean. What that really means for all of us. And to help us out, I want you to imagine two different postures that you can take when you attempt to abide in Jesus. And the first is what I'll call the religious posture, and the second is what I'll call the relational posture. And I think, if you are like me, when we read a chapter or a verse like this, we tend to go here first. The religious posture. I need to abide in God. I need to remain in Him, or I need to dwell in Him, so that He will abide in me. What we don't often do is we don't often think in terms of relationship. But if you think about it, that's Jesus' entire point, isn't it? He's using this imagery to encourage a relational understanding of abiding in Him. And so let's explore these two options together. Let's talk first about the religious posture. This is when I abide in Jesus so that God will abide in me. I read a passage like this, and I underline everything that I must do. And so I underline the warning in verse 6. And then I underline verse 7, and I say, okay, if I memorize the Bible, God won't disown me. In fact, he'll do what I ask him. That sounds great. I just, I'll just, I'll just start reading the word, and then I underline verse ten, and I say, "Well, I better obey God, or else I'm going to get cut off. So I better not do bad things, and I better do good things. That's that's where I go. I underline those verses, and then I ignore the rest. This is a way of abiding that many of us are in right now." And I call it religious because it has everything to do with what we do to approach God. But there's another way. It's the relational way of abiding. And it's not focused primarily on what we do, but on what God does. Uh, So Steve Brown, he likes to encourage religious people, if that's you, like me. He likes to encourage religious people to look at all the verses in their Bible that they don't have underlined. Because he says it's most likely that the verses that you have underlined are the verses that tell you what to do. And the verses that you haven't underlined are the verses that describe for us everything that God has done and God is doing. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a very familiar passage and we're going to explore every single thing that God or Jesus, who is God in flesh, is doing for his people. And then I think what it will do is it will reframe the way that we understand our actions within the abiding relationship. Because there is things that we do in here. Things like listening to his word, things like praying, things like obedience, they're in there. We won't ignore those things. But what we need to do is we need to first see everything. We need to be washed over with everything that God does by grace, 
so that we then approach the relationship the way that God set it up. So one way to do this, I think, is go verse by verse. Starting in verse 1. What is God doing in this relationship? Well, the first thing he's doing is he sends you a true vine in your place. So what does Jesus say? He says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. I am the authentic vine. I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. What is going on here? Well, in Jesus's Bible, our Old Testament, God's people were called to be a luxurious, green, living vine. Hosea 10.1 says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. God's redemption is often described as God taking for himself a vine and planting it and tending it. And so we are called to be a fruitful vine. That's the very image that Jesus had in his Bible and that we have in ours. But the story of the Bible, not to mention the story of the church and not to mention the story of our own individual lives, is not one of fruitfulness, is it? But often of faithlessness. So that God would eventually say, even in the Old Testament, the prophet, through the prophet Jeremiah, this is chapter 2, verse 21. God says, I was the one who planted you. Choosing a vine of the purest stock, the very best. And he asks this question to his people. He says, how did you grow into a corrupt wild vine? So when Jesus comes onto the scene and he looks at his disciples' eyes and he says, I am the true vine. I am the authentic vine. He's saying, I am what God called you to be. But you did not follow through. I am the true vine and I'm here for you. You see, God sends a true vine for his wild vine. Jesus is saying, against the wild vine, I alone am perfectly faithful and fruitful. Against the dead vine, I alone am fully alive. Against the faithless vine, I alone am perfectly faithful. And I do it, and I came for you. I know you're a wild, corrupt vine. That's why I'm here. I'm the true vine. I know your branches are dry and withering. I know, I know, I am the true vine. Number two, verse two. God not only sends a true vine in our place, God prunes his vine. What is pruning? Pruning is a painful process by which God sees ways in which we are growing to our destruction and instead reorients us to grow and flourish. And God is an active gardener to his vine. 
And so he looks at us and he sees us swerving into the ground. And instead he prunes things off and he instead makes us grow and flourish. In our backyard, we have to constantly prune this rose bush that we have. And it's behind our fence, so we never see it. And months will go by and I'll look at it and it looks like tumbleweed. The thing looks like tumbleweed. Roses don't even come out of it because we don't prune it. But when we're constantly pruning it, this thing flourishes. Did you know that God is more committed to you than you will ever be committed to Him? You are our dingy, I don't mean this disrespectful, but you are our rosebush. And by yourself and left by yourself, you will grow into the ground and you will, you will not flourish. But God is pruning you. He's actively pruning you. You may not know it. You may not feel like it. You may not know how to interpret your life to see it, but he is doing it. He is committed to your growth. Number three, verse three, God cleans you. Jesus says, already you are clean. I don't want to overcomplicate this. If you're clinging to Jesus, you're clean. Okay? You're clean. You're already clean. Number four, verse four. God abides in you. Look at verse four. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. Now, religion reads verse four as a threat. Abide in me. And maybe, 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 just maybe I'll abide in you. But verse four is a beautiful assurance. The Bible scholar Leon Morris, he translates verse four, the Greek, the original Greek this way. Abide in me and see that I abide in you. That's not religion. That's relationship. Abide in me and see how I'm abiding in you. Not works, but grace. So the entire Bible, actually, is a story of this verse. It's a picture of God's desire to abide with His people. And so if you think about it, the very first chapter of the story of Scripture, the story of the universe, begins with an abiding God in the garden. God is walking among His people. Uh, But we are exiled from God's abiding presence because of our rebellion and our sin and our distrust. But God wants to fix that. And we see his heart in Exodus. I'll just read one verse from chapter 25. This is verse 8. God says, And let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell with my people. And if you have the eyes to see it, you'll read the Old Testament as one big convoluted and, and weird story of God trying to dwell with rebellious, sinful people. You'll read Leviticus in a different way the rest of your life. You'll see Leviticus not as a strange, weird book, but as a love story. God, in fact, saying, I want to be with you, but my holiness demands sacrifice. I don't want to burn you up. So bring that spotless lamb. 
so I can be with you. So I can be with my rebellious, exiled people. And the whole Old Testament sort of culminates into John chapter 1, when John, Jesus' friend, Jesus' disciple, says, the Word of God dwelt among us. Jesus is the heart of God coming to a broken people, abiding near us. When Jesus came, he was ushering us into a new Eden. God walks among us now. So, when I read verse 4, I see the gospel. I see the good news of Jesus. Abide in me and see that I abide in you. Number five, verse five. God grows you. God grows you. If we do anything godly, it's because Jesus is working in us. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And then in verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And so what we have here is we have this sort of ego deflator where any good work that we do, anything that we do that is like, you know, godly and lovely. This is ego deflator where 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 Jesus is saying uh, it's because of me. It's because of me. I like how Paul says in Ephesians 2, he says, We are all God's handiwork, created in Christ uh, to do good works. And many of us, we stop underlining there, don't we? Created to do good works. And we're thinking, okay, I'm God's handiwork, and I have been put on earth to be a good person, you know? To love God really well and to love neighbor really well. But we forget and we don't read on and we don't continue to underline, underline what he says after that. He says, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So even our good works have been prepared in advance for us to do. Apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. Number six, verse seven. God hears you. Jesus says in verse 7, if you take a look, he says, essentially, we have God's ear and we have his promise that he will act on our prayers. Number 7, verse 8, God has a vision for you. God wants you to be fruitful. He says, by this, by this fruitfulness, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. And so what you have to understand in this one, again, we read this as a threat. Oh, I better be a disciple. No, instead, see it as God's vision for you. There's this beautiful vision, actually, in Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah says in 61.3, he says he describes God's people as a garden of oak trees. Have you ever tried to pull out an oak tree? A young sapling oak tree. They don't pull out. They don't. They just don't. They don't pull out. They're really sturdy. Something about the root structure. I don't know. Well, God has a vision for his people that we are a garden of oak trees. <laughs> Think of that. And so why? Actually, in Isaiah, it says, it says the planting of the Lord. We would be the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. See, God has a vested interest in you being sturdy and you being fruitful. Why? Because it redounds to his fame, to his name, and to his glory. And he exists for the sake of his name and his glory and his fame. 
He exists to be glorified. And so he has a vested interest in your growth. He wants you to flourish. And he has a vision for you that you would not just be a a sort of a, a a dry twig, but you would be a massive giant oak for all of eternity. He grows you for his glory. Number eight, verse nine. God loves you. We're not done. Okay, we're not done. We're going verse by verse. Remember, verse nine tells us that in the same way that the father loves Jesus, Jesus loves us. That should blow your mind. I love my dad. My dad loves me. As I've heard another say it this way, we've loved each other for 36 years. My dad for 37, if you count the nine months in utero, right? He's loved me that long. And think about Jesus and his father. Their loving relationship was all of eternity. And, and, God, and Jesus says that the love that he has for us is like the love that the father has for him. Religion says, love Jesus and he will love you back. Jesus says, I love you first. And that produces love in return. Number nine, verse 10. God accepts you. So verse 10, we're going to talk about verse 10 in a minute. Verse 10 tells us that we are to obey God. But by now we should realize that this obedience flows from our acceptance. I mean, the verse exactly prior says, I love you. And so then our obedience flows out of a secure standing in His love. And we must look to Jesus, who says in verse 10, He says, just as I've kept my Father's commandments, and I abide in His love. And so we look to Jesus, who kept His Father's commandments perfectly, abided in God's love perfectly. And this is the basis of our acceptance before God. Remember, He is the true vine, and we are the wild vine. He came in our place. He's the vine that flourishes and grows. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So the question for all of you is, will I attach myself to that vine with empty hands of faith? And when you do, verse 11, you get his joy and from you comes real joy. We need to wake up to God's scandalous grace. We may think we get it. We don't. We don't get it. It hasn't sunk deep enough into our bones. We are the wild vine. Jesus says, I am the only true vine. Attach yourself to me. So the other day, I was giving my little Lou a bath. My little Lou gave me the cold, by the way. That's why I'm struggling. <laughs> but um, I love my little Lou. Anyway, he was, he, was, uh, he was taking a bath, enjoying his toys in the bath. I was, though, on the other hand, sitting on the catacorner steps, exhausted. And what do I do when I'm exhausted? I pull out my phone. That's what I do. So I'm sitting on the steps. I'm looking at, what do I look at when I'm exhausted on my phone? Twitter. Okay, so I'm looking at Twitter. I'm just scrolling. Okay, and I'm exhausted sitting on the steps. Um, And on Twitter, somebody posted this video of two brothers competing in the world championship 
triathlon in Cozumel. Two brothers are from England, the Brownlee brothers. Do you know who these guys are? The Brownlee brothers. There's a nod. I see a nod. Do I see another nod? Every hand, every hand, right? Every eye bowed. Okay, whatever. Um, well, okay, the Brownlee brothers, Alistair and Johnny. Johnny is the younger brother. Alistair is the older brother. They're in the last stretch of the world championship in Cozumel. Johnny is in the lead. His older brother, Alistair, is behind him in a second place battle with someone from South Africa. And all of a sudden, you start to see Johnny wobble. It's bizarre. He's got the, the, the finish line in front of him, and he starts to wobble. Have you ever seen Gumby? He starts to look like Gumby. And then what happened next made me weep in that stairwell. So instead of explaining it, I'll just play it for you. control of his legs and this is worrying oh and he's starting to slow and there is a little way to go there's half a k to go and johnny is running out of time and he's losing he's losing his sense of direction this is worrying oh goodness me this is a horrible sight jonathan brownlee has lost it now and has staggered to a stop at the side of the course. And Alistair's stopped to help him along. And Alistair is going to try and carry his brother home. Dramatic scenes in Cozumel as the Olympic champion carries his younger brother towards the podium. Unbelievable scenes. Unbelievable scenes in Cozumel. The Brownie brothers arm in arm, but it's not by way of celebration. Henry Schumann's celebrating. He's going to win this race in Cozumel out of nowhere. But we have to be concerned about the health of Jonathan Brownie. And they're not even on the final stretch yet. Schumann wins in Cozumel. The brothers are coming home arm in arm to finish in second and third. But Johnny can hardly stand. And Alistair is having to drag him across the line and pushing him home, pushing him home for second. Johnny finishes in second. Goodness me. What an incredible conclusion here in Cozumel. Never seen anything like that anywhere in world sport. Worrying scenes all around. I don't think it's a worrying scene at all. 
We're Johnny. We can't finish. Did you see him? He gave up. He said to the steward, just, just walk me. And hard as we try, we're Johnny. We can't finish. But Jesus, he's our older brother. Instead, I mean, think about this. I showed this to my sons. They're all three brothers. And we're saying now in our family, third place, first place. Third place, first place. Because Alistair could have run past his brother. But he stops. He forgoes the glory of first. He drags his brother to the line and pushes him across the finish line. Abiding in Jesus is like Johnny. We're barely hanging on. We can't feel our legs, but we make it because of his commitment, not ours. And so let this passage reframe everything for you. I mean, this passage does not remove you. It's not a complete removal of you. You don't just drop out and become passive in this abiding relationship. I mean, after all, I love this video because it showed Johnny straining. Did you see him straining? Even in the end, he's straining. But there's a recognition that he's being dragged even as he strains. Jesus mentions three things in this passage that we are to do. Uh, We're to listen to God's word. Verse 7. We're to pray to God. Verse 7. We're to obey God. Verse 10. And so abiding in Jesus means doing these things. So grace doesn't remove these practices, but it certainly changes our motivations. Religion will take these three things and say, I need to read the Bible. I must pray to God and I must not do bad things so that God will love me. And maybe if we're honest, so that God will give me what I really want. See, we think that by praying to him, by reading his Bible and by obeying him, we might just might have a chip at the bargaining table. We might be able to sit at the divine council and say, God, I have obeyed you my whole life. I have prayed to you my whole life. I have a vision for my life. Would you please stamp it? Uh, But the way of relationship is different. We read God's word because we want to listen to our older brother, Jesus. We pray because like a child, we want to talk to dad. And we obey because like... Someone who has an apprentice, we long to learn the way of life. It's a whole different reorientation. So you'll have a choice this morning. It's do you abide in your own strength? Or do you abide in the one who abides in you?